Well, Dr. Sleepy, it's such a pleasure to have you back in the studio. We're actually in our new studio. Last time we were in the rental bank, so this is a little bit different this time. Yeah, this is super nice. Yeah, thanks. And I had such an interesting response from our last podcast together. Your video, I put on Rumble, and it had more views than any single video I've ever put on Rumble before. People were really interested in what you had to say about COVID and all of the interesting things we talked about last time. Wonderful. Yeah, maybe I can give a, an update on that. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. So today we have a few different topics to talk about. They're all as pressing as each, each one is as pressing. First thing I wanted to talk to you about today is about just the idea of restructuring healthcare. And I think a lot of us have realized since COVID happened and we've seen this pushback, there's almost like two opposing forces happening between more holistic naturopath um, and then big pharma, big medicine. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, a little bit about my journey. So my journey did not start when the pandemic started. My journey started 20 years before. So late 1990s, I realized there was more than what mainstream medicine was offering. So I sort of started my departure. I didn't do a clean break, but I was still working in emergency medicine, which was standard medical care. But I also opened up a center that was um, kind of integrative, more holistic. And that sort of morphed out over the years into what I'm doing now, which is functional medicine. Or I actually call it reformed functional medicine because it's a little bit different than what you would maybe traditionally think. Um, but it, the pandemic actually was a big catalyst for this big move away from what mainstream medicine has to offer. You know, you're talking big hospital systems, big pharma, big insurance, big government, all these big, big scares me in a way. So all these big things are, are not in the patient's best interest. And it's hard for physicians in that system, they're kind of locked in for lots of reasons, to kind of break free. Uh, so they're kind of held captive and they have to do the status quo and they don't become really good patient advocates. That's one thing that I have noticed <clears throat> in that world is that as a patient, you have to really fight for feeling like you're being put first in that world. Um, it definitely feels like you are at the mercy of protocol and money and insurance and numbers. It's, it's disgusting, <laughs> but it's very, it's also very frustrating because most people don't, I would say that most people don't have the gumption to stand up to it. Like the, the average patient is not going to check their physician and say, I don't, I don't want to take that medication or are there alternatives? And if they, if they do ask for alternatives, they're shunned mm -hmm. and shamed for asking for it. Right. What has your experience been with that? Yeah, so uh, we get that sort of feedback from folks coming into our kind of paradigm. Uh, and you'd have to look back in history to right after the Civil War when America th at that time became the medical mecca. Before that, it was Europe. You wanted exceptional health care, you had to go to England or Germany or France. But after the Crimean War th and then the Civil War after that, there were so many advances that we made in this country that we basically surpassed Europe. 
and that includes the pharmaceutical industry. Back then they were called chemical companies and most of them were in the north. There were a few that were um, uh, in Europe that were sending things to the south but because of the blockade they couldn't get through. So the south actually relied on more herbal medicine and that's Dr. Um, uh, Pierre, uh, Francis uh, Pierre uh, Porchet from Charleston was instrumental in creating a book of herbal medicine that we still use today. We still reference it today. But it was at that point that sort of uh, everything sort of got really big. I mean, big hospital systems started to develop. I think the heyday for most physicians in solo practice was in the 1970s. After that, hospitals start gobbling up uh, these little practices, and now it's very rare to find uh, a physician in solo practice. Um, it's just uh, kind of almost unheard of. But we need to kind of go back to that because the hospital systems became institutions for like big, big business. I mean, the old Catholic hospitals, you had nuns as administrators running it. So you see a nun in a habit and she was the CEO or the chief financial officer. Now you don't see any nuns. Um, you used to have doctors that were the head of the hospital. They were the CEOs. Mm -hmm. Not so anymore. It's usually uh, somebody with an MBA yeah. or a business degree. Um, and that has changed the flavor and the, and the culture of medicine. And, um, you know, there are some folks that have authored some really good books about that, about that problem. Um, and uh, they're out there on the Internet to read. And there'll be more coming out, I think, mm -hmm. talking about our problems. But we have to kind of break free from this and go back to what medicine really, um, the, the original culture of taking care of your patients, putting them first, not being a slave to insurance companies or big pharma or practice guidelines, which are usually about 15 to 20 years old. Which your obsolete. average person doesn't know that. They don't know that. No, they, um, they take what their doctors say with, as gospel, especially folks in the 50 plus year um, you know, those are folks that grew up trusting their doctors and whatever the doctor said was right and true. And um, it can't really be said that that's the truth anymore. Um, and I think the younger demographic patients that are in their 20s to 40s are saying, you know, wait a minute, Google says this and you're telling me different. And, um, and then they'll ask their doctor a question and sometimes the doctors don't know because they're not doing their homework. Uh, they're not keeping up. And uh, they, they kind of lose trust. Patients lose trust in that um, because they don't think they're getting the whole truth, the straight story, or it's dated information. Well, the and advent of social media, I believe, has perpetuated that. It's, it's propelled it because now people are actually discussing. They're having that conversation on the Internet. Why did this happen when I asked my doctor this question? Mm -hmm. And then you'll have just response after response from people going, okay, well, this is what I found on that topic. And it becomes this crowdsourced mm -hmm. medicine of non-medical people, right. you know? Right. So uh, I was listening to a podcast last night and Pierre Corey was talking about the general public. So they have this big conference coming up in Orlando in October. And somebody asked the question, well, are people invited? And he said, well, actually it's a, it's a conference for mostly physicians and healthcare practitioners. But he, he went on to say that a lot of non-medical people are instruments for bringing in some interesting information. You know, some people are, you know, diving deep into research and finding studies that are published in these obscure journals that are meaningful and aren't part of mainstream medicine. So. Yeah, or even taking old 
taking old research from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that was reported in one way mm -hmm. to benefit the medical mm -hmm. complex and going, actually, the way you cited that is completely incorrect. And this was what that study actually right. said. And you don't have to go back that far. It's happening today. Um, research today, you've had a, a series of ex-editors of powerful journals, New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, uh, JAMA, um, British Medical Journal, who are all saying, you know, in these interviews, well, some of the stuff we published wasn't factual, it was manipulated, or it was, you know, we were bought out by pharma. So, you know, now we look back at the information in our journals, which is in important to us to make decisions on how to manage patients, and now we have to wonder if, if that's a good, reliable resource now. Which is yeah. so tough, because medical journals were the gold standard yeah. for so many people. You mentioned something to me that I thought was very interesting, and it being that the medical complex, right, and I think you referred to it as a medical industrial complex, right. is leading with what we call sick health care right. or sick care. Yeah. Explain that to Okay, me. so sick care versus well care is something that's plagued our system probably 50 to even 100 years. Um, I mean, I think big hospital systems that were designed uh, when the germ theory was sort of being discovered in the late 1800s, um, you had hospital, like pavilion hospital systems. So they knew that bunching people up close together wasn't good. You had to have good ventilation, airing it out. Um, There's a big hospital at the end of the Civil War in Richmond. It was one of the largest uh, pavilion hospitals in America. Uh, serving the Confederacy, um, and they realized what what was needed to keep people healthier while they were in you know in in getting well from a from an injury, because most people didn't die from injuries then they died from disease right. almost you know three to one, so um, it's sort of that kind of came on to, as a place that you put ill people and it was kind of delivering kind of sick care you know, people were sick you give them an antibiotic. They get better. Uh, to keep the system going, you needed to kind of have this revolving door of, I hate to say this, but keeping people sick, not actually curing them um, of their illness and keeping them well. You keep them sick so that you can keep writing their, their prescriptions for whether it's blood pressure, diabetes, hypertension, you know, uh, issues, cancer. Um, so it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling, perpetual machine, motion machine. And uh, unfortunately, that has been ingrained. So we need to open up centers of excellence in preventive medicine, not just giving it lip service, but actually, you know, performing true preventive medicine. And, call, you know, we can call them well centers or wellness centers. Yeah. yeah. That, that mentality is is so far from people's minds right now. People don't think of their doctor as any as anyone else other than treating their illnesses and prescribing medication. When I came to your practice, which was my first time coming to your practice, I believe was seven years ago, you sat down across the, your desk from me for the first time. I didn't see you in a clinical, you know, in a room somewhere with a with a table with paper White on top on of it. it. Yeah. <laughs> you, are you, we sat down in your office and you did a complete health inventory from the time I was born 
you asked for my parents' pre-existing conditions, you asked for my grandparents' pre-existing conditions, and we did this inventory where you highlighted every single major illness that I had when I was a child, including concussions and mono and all of those things, you created this timeline and then said, I think you might have these things going on. We're going to do some tests to figure it out. But you also said the whole point of this is to get you well, but well for life. Right. To get you on the track to being healthy forevermore. And it, it, it changed my whole perception of healthcare. And I've been so frustrated through this COVID process because I have known that there were protocols and treatments that you could have on hand in your house for whenever you caught mm-hmm. COVID and you could take it and you would get better. The likelihood of you getting better is so much more dramatic. But when I try to share that information with my friends and family, the resistance is crazy. Right. Crazy. Yeah, well, I think mainstream media media is uh, is uh, it's a propaganda machine, and it's they've tweaked it out. I mean, they make uh, Goebbels look like you know um, a amateur, um, but they have actually um, convinced the American public that whatever comes out of the CDC, the NIH, whatever's published in a peer-reviewed journal is gospel. You know, even some um, pundits that are medical pundits on some of these news agencies, if they say something, that's the way it is. Um, and it's hard to combat that because you're like this, you know, this fringe kook who's like saying something quite different. So why should I believe you? You're like one and there's, you know, hundreds that are saying the opposite. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you just have to look at, you know, Dr. Sommelweis from the turn of the century in Hungary. And he was trying to convince people to wash their hands before they delivered babies. And he had the lowest incidence of complications with pregnant mothers uh, than his other, other, you know, folks that were delivering babies at the time. And so what happened was people were rushing to him to deliver babies because they were like, you know, his, he has a great track record. Right. And it made the other guys jealous. And so they kind of went after him. And he wound up being put in a sane asylum. They said, he's crazy. You know, this is, we're never going to do this. It's not right. I, you know. Fast forward a few years and, you know, doctors wash their hands, right? Everyone. So what started out as uh, what they, you know, quote unquote, this nut uh, wound up, you know, changing, changing uh, medicine for the better. And that's where I hope that we are today, that those of us who are standing firm and saying we're not going to tolerate this anymore and there's a better option, there's a, there's a, there's well care and we can go in that direction. I hope that that long term is is where we end up in medicine. So one of the things that you do is help other physicians learn how to start these types of practices. What are you hearing from those, those guys and girls who come to you and say, I'm interested in starting this. How do I do it? What does that look like? What do you share with them? So it usually um, starts with um, a practitioner who has either been terminated or has left mainstream medicine for many reasons, maybe burnout, maybe the mandates, whatever. And then they come out, they've been sheltered and insulated so much that they only know how to practice medicine based on guidelines. They don't know anything about functional medicine. They don't know anything about starting their own practice from the business end 
they don't know. You ask them about HR and they're like, what's E-Verify? You know, they have no clue. <laughs> so they're going to flounder and struggle. So we get the newbies coming right out that haven't even started yet that need some help. And we help them with everything from the business end, the back office, the front office, to clinical information and guidance and education. And then you have some folks who have kind of come out and started their practice and maybe they're at it for a year or two and they're floundering because they don't have the marketing down or they can't figure out how to get the patient base or they just don't feel comfortable with some of the um, you know functional medicine testing and whatnot. So we have different arms. Um, my my uh, model has been morphed since the late 90s into what it is today. So lots of bumps and bruises later, there was no playbook for me. So I had to kind of invent it as I went. So we're pretty comfortable and confident with what we've developed now is very sustainable, profitable. We have for our providers, myself included, as well as my, I have six nurse practitioners and PAs now that work with me. They all have a good work-life balance. So that's important. That eliminates uh, burnout, and burnout in healthcare is a big, big problem. It's taken out a lot of providers. So we combat that early on. Uh, we set it up where it's simple and straightforward. And we provide sort of the support they need, clinical support. We even have a call center they can use to funnel calls into their practices. I mean, we, it's, it's soup to nuts, really, uh, with what we do for them. Yeah. And one, you mentioned marketing in your in your presentation that you that I looked through before we started talking today, that marketing is oh is it's a beast. It's a beast. It's an enigma to me. It I is. mean, I've gone through at least six or seven marketing companies. Um, the the thing is, I'm I'm really focused on digital marketing. I think that's where it is right now. It is. Um, and uh, I've given up all print and all Facebook ads and Google ads aren't really worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, it's now word of mouth. So I've been at this now almost a decade at this practice with two locations, and now we're seeing a shift from novel Google searches, organic searches to find us, to word of mouth. You know, oh, a new patient comes in. How'd you hear about us? Oh, well, I met somebody in the grocery store that mentioned your name, and then two days later, one of my friends or one of my neighbors mentioned your names, and so that's it you know, two or three yes. times like that, and they have to be seen. You know, I've got to go see Dr. Salibi, you know. No, absolutely. So, I, don't, mm -hmm. I've, I don't know how many people I've mentioned your practice to, especially when they found out what my medical history was and what you discovered with my Lyme disease. News, spoiler alert for anybody who's new, I had Lyme disease and Dr. Salibi found it um, seven years ago. But yeah, it's, it's, word of mouth is the best, it's the best marketing you can do. And but also I think what something that's really great that you do too is your blog and sharing your thoughts online even though you're getting censored like crazy because people share that mm -hmm. even if they're not sharing it they're reading it sure it's true yeah because they are afraid to comment right because if they comment or share it that means that they they're get a crazy dinged. kook yeah yeah they get dinged too yeah so uh, but yeah as far as the censorship goes I'm taking names and and numbers I'm watching this very carefully because. Mm -hmm. Now, these people will have to be held accountable because they're actually hurting people. They're killing people. Yeah, they're, I yeah, mean, ultimately, they're ultimately. Yeah, accessories in that crime. Of, Absolutely. Of hurting or harming or killing people. So um, at some point in the future, they'll be held accountable. It's yeah. going to be a great day. Yeah. A great day. It's been very fresh. This whole process has been very frustrating. It has been. Yeah. Very frustrating. 
because if social media is meant to share, if the, if the whole point of social media is to be social and to share, but you're only allowing a narrative, we are further into dystopia than right. we oh, yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. So you, all, you mentioned the FLCCC, and that is something else that I've been highly censored over is sharing any FLCCC information. Right. Frontline critical care. Co yeah, so they're the Frontline Criti COVID Critical Care Alliance, and they were co-founded by a number of doctors, um, mostly in the New York area in Wisconsin. So Dr. Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey are the chief uh, officers, medical officers that helped co-found this with a few other doctors. Um, it was an organization that initially started, their focus was, <clears throat> excuse me, inpatient care, like protocols for sick people that were dying in the hospitals when the pandemic hit. Yeah. And they came up with some novel uh, interventions that were repurposed drugs. Right. People may have heard of ivermectin and how that was vilified and demonized, but it's a, one of the safest drugs on the planet, one of the most prescribed drugs on the planet. And it was repurposed for use in um, COVID and viral infections, and now long haulers, and now post-vaccine you know, vaccine injury. Mm -hmm. So they sort of morphed these protocols into an outpatient early treatment. And Pierre actually went and spoke before Congress at least twice, uh, pleading with the government to please allow this word to get out. And um, unfortunately, the media suppressed it. And I mean, it really probably costs people their lives. I recently had a patient who was in hospital with a bad COVID infection. He was fighting a malignancy, so he's on chemo. Mm -hmm. And he was put in a hospital in Atlanta and he was getting the routine treatment. Even though the family said, I don't want him to get remdesivir, they gave it to him anyway. So he was on BiPAP, uh, like a CPAP, and they were getting ready to intubate him, and they wanted to make him a DNR, and the family oh opposed it. Oh my gosh. Yep. And what they did to keep him alive was they snuck in ivermectin, yep. either in a shake or uh, the, the, the wife actually put it in a case, like a, a jewel case or his eyeglass case so that he could get it. So when the nurses weren't looking, he was popping his ivermectin. Well, he's out now. He got well enough to come off a high flow oxygen and he's actually home on uh, like two liters of nasal cannula oxygen. Still a little work to get him healed, but at least he's alive because a lot of people aren't. And the nurses even said, you're gonna be one of the first people to leave our ward alive. She told him that. My question yeah. though, in that situation, because this is not the only, he is not the only person I've, I've heard of having their family sneak in ivermectin. As a nurse, I understand as a doctor, you being so ingrained in that culture that you want to follow that protocol that's been given to you or you risk losing your job. But there's a difference to me with nurses because nurses are, Nurses are a different breed. They are willing to buck the system sometimes, but you can't tell me that you've not been seeing patients for two and a half years with COVID and you still think that remdesivir and intubation is the way to go. I don't, I don't know why we're not seeing more of a revolt in that it, from the nurses. Right, right. So there are a, a host of nurses in the system that are bucking the system and have lost their jobs as a consequence. And you know, some of them, you know, that's a big thing. That's a big sacrifice to make. You know, um, I decided I was gonna do that with my practice. I rounded up my 
practitioners and say, hey, we're going to go front line. This is not how we do things usually, but if somebody calls in, instead of scheduling an appointment two weeks out, we're going to have to see them that day if they're acutely ill right. to keep them out of the hospital. So we made that decision even though we knew there may be ramifications for that. Um, and there were. So for me, uh, you know, an investigation was opened by the medical board because of a complaint that came from a big hospital system in Myrtle Beach. So, um, but there's, that's not going anywhere. I mean, that's, it's a frivolous right. kind of complaint. Um, but when you have nurses that are supporting their family, that maybe they're the main breadwinner, winner, maybe they're a single mom with two kids and they can't rock the boat too much because then they'll be kicked out and blacklisted. They right. won't get a job anywhere. Uh, but there are uh, probably more than we realize out there. Uh, but it's hard to, to see people succumb under the same protocol that hadn't changed much and then just sit back and say, well, you know, I guess that's all we can do. I mean, either, either you're totally ignorant or totally, um, you know, bamboozled by uh, the narrative or you don't care. I mean, that's terrible. But I mean, if you're ignorant of what's really out there that can help, then you, you have a, a hall pass. But if you see what's going on and know it's wrong and don't do anything about it, you don't get a hall pass. No. You know, you're going to have to be held accountable, uh, however it goes down. And I think that's going to happen pretty quickly yeah. uh, with, with what's going on in, in D.C. Uh, you know, with Fauci stepping down and Lingsi retiring and moving on, I think you can see the whole thing unravel quickly. I agree. I agree. And you handled when the vaccine situation came out, when you first heard that there were going to be vaccines that could help, that could potentially help. I talked to you about it and I was very, uh, I, 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 really dug my heel in the sand and I went, this is bad. This is, they're going to try to kill people with this. I was, and you were like, Let's see how it goes. You were very, you were very, um, I would say, way more than me, willing to, willing to, I don't want to say accept, but you were willing to do chance. the research. Yes, yeah, give yeah. it a chance. <laughs> right. And I was like, no, they're, they're killing people. But you did. You, wait, you, you said, I want to wait and watch and see what happens. And you did. But now... You're seeing Different injury. Yes. Talk to me about that. So you're right. In the early parts of the pandemic, when early interventions with things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and the nutraceutical bundles were actually keeping people alive and out of the hospitals, I knew that was the crux of what we needed to do. Of course, when the vaccines were de developed and then um, implemented, um, you know, people would come to me and say, should I get vaccinated? I mean, this new thing, Pfizer just came out and Moderna's in the pipeline. Should I, which one should I get? Johnson and Johnson? I mean, so I just had, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is the answer to curtail this um, uh, pandemic uh, because of what was re being reported in the news. I mean, I had no real life encounters of walking into a hospital ward and looking at their ICU. I was taking it on the word of what media was telling us, and that's that was propaganda, you know, hindsight now. Uh, it was false information, a lot of it. So I was just very hesitant about anything new. I, you know me, I don't like new stuff. You don't, new but drugs. you also, you want to see the research. I want to see the and research. And you, you will not say definitively one way or the other whether you're for or against until right. you've done your research. Right. 
I and, respected that a lot. And I like my old drugs. I like my older drugs <laughs> right. if I'm going to use drugs because they have a history. Yeah. So when they, when they came out and said, well, this is safe and effective after only one month in clinical trials, I'm like, hmm, I could see, well, maybe you could say effective, but safe? How could you say safe? Right. And be so adamant and say, oh, it's safe for pregnant women. It's safe for children. I'm like, uh-uh. That's a big lie. And you don't have to be a scientist. You, you can be a third grader and hear that and say, well, that's a lie. There's no an amount of time that has elapsed to prove that it's safe. So that's what made me get off the fence. Because I was on the fence. I decided not to get vaccinated. I didn't trust them. Um, so I, I decided, well, I can't push my views on my patients. I'll have them decide for themselves. So I gave them both sides of the story and said, you do your research, you make the decision what's right for you. Uh, some people had to. They had to travel overseas right. to, to go to visit a sick parent, and they, ha they wouldn't be able, able to fly unless they got vaccinated, so they were forced, or they were forced to because of work, because of certain mandates. But then I kind of hopped off the fence when Peter McCauley started announcing some of the research on the myocarditis and the cardiac and neurological ramifications. I said, oh my God, this is horrible. And then you had people like Zelenko, uh, God rest his soul, he oh, died recently. But he was a big pioneer. He was at the tip of the spear on nutraceuticals and using zinc and quercetin. And he was one of the early outspoken people, anti-COVID vaccine. Yeah. Not anti-vaxxer, but anti-COVID vaccine. And people are like, oh my God, he's gonna, he's gonna get it, you know? Um, and then Peter McCauley and then Pierre Corey and the FLCC kind of aligned. They came in a little slower, but they were very cautious. Because back then, you said anything negative, and they would crush you. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, but now that more people are behind that idea, uh, and it's becoming more mainstream now, um, I think the American public is waking up to this, I don't want to get boosted the rest of my life kind of thing. You know, now they're throwing out a monkeypox vaccine, and now in the wings is a uh, Lyme disease vaccine for Lyme. And I'll talk about that later yeah. um, because I'm not for that one either. So unfortunately, I was never a quote-unquote anti-vaxxer. I had my you know, tetanus booster a couple of years ago. Um, I think they were a good thing. Now as I'm looking at the research again and re-examining things and reading some books uh, about vaccine and vaccine history, I'm wondering if it's really not a very good thing. Yeah. 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 Talk to me about what you're seeing in your patients with vaccine injury? Yeah. So the, we still see a few acute cases every week, acute COVID, but they're not, they're kind of mild cases. We still put them on protocol because we don't want them to accelerate into something that winds, uh, they wind up in the hospital. But since the advent of the vaccine, all of them, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer, and the boosting, the amount of boosting, they're basically succumbing to what we call a spikeopathy, the S-spike. So the S-spike protein that was coded for in the mRNA vaccines, they coded the entire genomic profile for that S-spike. Uh, and that's the pathological part. It's not the mRNA that does the disease, not the capsular um, proteins, it's the spike protein, these things that stick out that adhere to the cell. Um, and there's two parts. There's S1 and S2. S1 is the spear that attacks, and the S2 component is what pulls the virus and the human host cell together to fuse, have what they call fusion, and that's where the mRNA goes in and then replicates itself. 
uh, to produce more viruses. So instead of designing a vaccine that maybe went after the S2 part, they designed it to go after the entire S spike protein, which is the pathological part. So basically what they're doing is they're ramping up a person's cells to produce massive quantities of this S spike protein. Yeah. And we are calling it a spikeopathy because it's causing damage to different organs, yeah. heart, neurological, brain, kidneys, muscles, um, lungs. Um, it, it has a propensity for attaching to what they call an ACE2, uh, angiotensin um, 2 receptor, which is in every organ in our body. So when that S spike hits it, uh, it does some damage to that organ. And it's very difficult to get that stuff out. You can't do a, uh, a detox like we we're talking in functional medicine where you you go into a sauna and you sweat it out or you, you take a, a detoxification, chelating agents to poop it out or yeah. pee it out. It, that just doesn't work with the S-spike. Right. So as um, Paul, Paul Merrick talks about, in, uh, he talks about autophagia, how autophage, to eat thyself, these cells have a mechanism where if they're corrupted or damaged, uh, the cell will try to fix itself by cleaning up the insides, the organelles. And to spark that, there are certain things, like intermittent fasting will spark autophagia. Interesting. Uh, so will ivermectin. So will um, a few of these other things that are on protocol. And uh, low-dose naltrexone, for instance, is another one that will do it. So those are the ways to kind of clean up the cells. You clean up your cell and your subcomponents, like your mitochondria. It also um, advances something called mitophagia, where the mitochondria get cleaned up because they get disrupted. So you have a happy mitochondria, you have a happy cell, you have a happy organ, you have a happy person. The body right? heals. The body will heal itself. You just got to give it the right stuff. Right. Um, and a lot of that does not include heavy-duty pharmaceuticals. I mean, we've, we just have to turn on the news to see what's happened with Paclovid and these rebound cases of, um, you know, some people are on their second or third round of it because they get a rebound of their uh, COVID um, symptoms. Yeah. So that alone should tell you that that's not a very effective drug. It's a combo drug, but it's not very effective. So I have yet to write my first one, and I probably never will. No. Yeah. Because you've got the protocol. Right. You've got the protocol. We know it works, and it's yes. cheap. You don't have to pay $800 for a five-day course of That's Paxlovid. the problem. It's yeah. cheap. Yeah. It's not a moneymaker. Yeah. You know, it's keeping people alive, and it's cheap. Two things they don't want to happen, right? Right. right. Now, it appears, which is insane. It appears not, right? I know. Which is insane. I know. I, we're living in a clown world. I mean, absolute clown show. So, yeah, just interesting to see what Biden will do next. It's been quite interesting. Yeah. So, talk to me about what's going on with the Lyme world. Why don't you tell our listeners first what is Lyme disease? What, where did it originate, or what, is that, what does that look like? Okay, so it's a vector-borne illness. In other words, it's carried by certain organisms. Uh, mostly, when you think of Lyme disease, you think of the tick. So you've got the soft and the hard tick. You've got the deer tick and the dog tick. And it turns out all ticks can give you Lyme and some co-infections like Babesia, Bartonella, Anaplasma, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. They all can be transmitted with one bite. You can get several things, not just Lyme, which is Borrelia bungdorfiae. And then there's 150 plus species of that worldwide. You have some that are in Japan, like Borrelia 
Matamotoi. You have some from Germany, you have all over the world. And they make their way around the world on the backs of migratory birds. That's how they're spread. Interesting. Yeah. But we found out that not only does the tick do it, but the flea and the mosquito. And I recently interviewed Richard Horowitz, Dr. Horowitz, which is my mentor, and he's written a new book. Actually, it's a book of fiction, but it, it decries the you know, climate change and how the Lyme disease is going up because ticks and mosquitoes and fleas are increasing in number, whereas our little tree frogs and other animals like polar bears are dying out. So um, that um, disease actually originated or was first recognized officially with the name Lyme disease from Lyme, Connecticut, where a concerned mother kind of sparked this investigation into why her children and neighborhood kids were sick right. with this unusual disease. So they named it after Lyme, Connecticut, but it's not an endemic uh, sort of, um, they're not regions anymore that are high for Lyme. It's all over the world. You can't just say, well, if you're not from New, J New Jersey or New York or Pennsylvania, you're not going to get it. No. And contrary to that, people, uh, mainstream doctors down in the southeast still think you can't get Lyme disease. Or there's nothing, uh, so, uh, there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease. There's the I acute, had, but not the chronic. I had an OB, a uh, neighbor who was an OBGYN at a, one of the large local hospitals here in the middle of my treatment look at me straight in the face and go, you know there's no such thing as chronic Lyme, right? You need to be real careful with the medication you're taking. And I was like, yeah, you're not my doctor. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to say that. There's a good reason that. you're not my doctor, exactly. right? Um, because there again, they were being influenced by the propaganda mm -hmm. that's put forth out by mainstream media and the uh, mainstream medical industrial complex, if you, however you want to call it. Now, there was a vaccine developed a few years ago and it was pulled quickly because it was harming people, it was killing people. So they decided to pull it. Uh, now I believe it's Pfizer has another one in the pipeline that's going to be, you know, now everything's about vaccines. You know, we've heard about that to, to up here, up to our eyeballs in vaccine talk. So vax this, vax that. So now that there's a vaccine for Lyme disease might be very attractive to people who are buying into that argument. And to support that, it was very interesting about a month ago, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, which is a high-powered journal, published a study that was uh, a big study with groups of populations for Western Europe and Western Asia. And it was representative of the entire planet. So they took this microcosm of people and they said, well, if, if we study these people, we can say then that the whole world would be kind of reflective of what's going on here. And it was a study that showed about 14.5% of their study population testing positive for Lyme disease. They all had the antibodies. Now, when I read the study, I was very curious. I was like, wow, finally, this is coming to the surface. Right. We're talking about chronic Lyme disease. So I read the article and I looked at what tests they use. And they used a test that wasn't that sensitive. It didn't, it, in other words, it would miss a lot of cases. Yeah. Plus they ignored the whole Western hemisphere. So I said, well, you know, this is probably an underrepresentation. You know, sure. it's probably not 15%. It's probably more like 30 or 40 or maybe even 50%. Yes. So it, it's, a, it's an endemic problem. It's a pandemic of itself. Right. And I think that was released early so that now they can justify a vaccine for it. Of course they can. So this is all, you know, pre, premeditated stuff. But, uh, but again, you don't have to have a vaccine for Lyme because we have treatments that work.
Yeah. yeah. So tell me what the symptom, I can tell you, I could probably share this part, but I want you to share what are the symptoms if someone is, tell me what someone would look like. What would they be experiencing if they potentially had Lyme or chronic Lyme? Sure. So it's a great masquerader. It's the great chameleon. You know, years ago we looked at syphilis as that. You know, people that presented with syphilis, which by the way is a spirochete much like the Lyme bug. Mm -hmm. So that was the great masquerader. You had primary, secondary, tertiary syphilis. Uh, it could affect the brain. It could affect all kinds of weird things. You had weird rashes and things like that. And then when HIV came around in the 80s, the baton was handed over to that. So you look at HIV and AIDS as the great masquerader. People coming with neurological things with uh, Carposi sarcoma or weird cancers or immune dysfunction. And now I'd say the baton has been handed over to Lyme because Lyme is a great masquerader. I mean, there's probably 200 or more different symptoms and signs all over the place from neurological to cardiac to joint. People think of Lyme arthritis, you know, the joints are hurting. But 50% uh, of people with chronic Lyme disease will have neuropsychiatric manifestations, anxiety disorder, depression, something that looks like bipolar, something that looks like schizophrenia. Unfortunately, I had um, probably three, no, four cases in this last two months of that. Frank psychosis, people nutting up. And, um, you know, we're like, family wants to put them in the psychiatric hospital. And one of them actually is uh, or was admitted to the psychiatric hospital. Uh, but once we'd identified the root cause and started treatment, their psychosis disappeared. Even though every antipsychotic was thrown at them, it didn't work. Some, some even made them worse. So you have to be really cognizant of people who present with mental illness or mood disorders or behavioral problems, especially children. That's usually the first sign is a behavioral problem. But then you have the arthritis, you have the heart palpitations, you have the cardiac issues, you have POTS, P-O-T-S, which is where um, your heart rate just goes up crazy high all of a sudden. Um, and there are other disorders that kind of perpetuate that. So if you have a viral burden with like Epstein-Barr or CMV, or now we can add coronavirus to that mix, uh, that viral burden makes it worse. Uh, if you get a COVID infection, it can reactivate your Lyme. That's, our, that's what we've been seeing the last couple of years, especially the last 12 months. We've been seeing a lot of reactivation of Lyme. People who have been in remission or very stable for years, they get COVID and poof, you know, now they've got a full-blown, is it long haulers or is it their activated Lyme? Lyme it's sometimes hard to tell. So um, we take a kind of a shotgun approach at it until we um, get them on something acutely empirically and then we can sort it out and, de and determine if it is the coronavirus by itself or is it an underlying disorder. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the nutraceuticals because I, they're, they're, you can use them for, for COVID, these mm -hmm. right here, mm -hmm. but you also sure. use them so much in your Lyme protocol. Right. My, I, I had two pill cases, one for morning and one for nighttime. And I, ha I probably took 25 pills a day and they were all different nutraceuticals right. that did all sorts of different things. Right. Unfortunately, it's necessary for the healing process to occur. But uh, after that healing um, crisis, after that real initial part where you need all the stuff to support the mitochondria, to uh, reduce inflammation, 
whether they're nutraceuticals or some pharmaceuticals like naltrexone and doxycycline and ceftin and things like that. Um, once that happens and people get leveled off and they go into remission, and we call remission anywhere from 85% or better of where they want to be, you know, being in true health, that's remission. And then we can start to peel these things away. We can start taking away this and that. And so they have a kind of a baseline of, of things. So um, doctors um, from the uh, AFLDS and from the FLCCC and uh, doctors Lenko were advocating zinc and vitamin C and quercetin and uh, vitamin D. And, and then there were others thrown in like selenium and magnesium and probiotics and uh, omega-3s like your fish oils and things like that to help bolster and now it's becoming pretty complicated. If you go to the website and you look at the protocols, there's like several pages worth of, of stuff to take. Yeah, there is. Uh, but I've kind of distilled it down for my patients to make it easy. Nobody wants to get carpal tunnel syndrome opening up, <laughs> you know, 20 bottles every morning, right? Yeah. So once you're over that healing crisis and you're sort of in a remission state, and this, this goes for autoimmune diseases and, um, you know, long haulers and, and Lyme, all of it then we can distill it down into a very simple protocol. So uh, there are I brought a couple of things here today. Um, one that we routinely write is something called Aller-C. It's a combination of vitamin C and isocorsetin. So you get your corsetin and your C in one bottle. Right. And then the other one was a newer product from Euromedica. So they saw the writing on the wall and they were quick to act. They're like, doctors are recommending you know, zinc and selenium and melatonin for COVID are long haulers. So let's put together products so it's all in one. That's so brilliant. And they looked at um, overseas. They looked at Asia and they looked at Thailand. And Thailand was using, early on in the pandemic, they were using something called andrographis paniculata. So andrographis is an adaptogen herb that has medicinal qualities that they use in Asia a lot. China, you know, they, they all use it. Um, and it's effective against the virus. So that's in the, in the government um, official recommendations for fighting COVID, acute COVID, is andrographis. So this company put andrographis, zinc, selenium, and melatonin all in one bottle. So now my patients only need two bottles and they get it all. So they take their allergy in the morning and they take because of the melatonin you only take it at night yeah. so you take that one at at nighttime for maintenance now if you get sick then you double up you know you go two two um, allergies in the morning and two at night and then go from one to two of the andrographis immune uh, in the evening so that is real simple yeah and, and a pretty affordable and then the only other things you might have to add in are the probiotics and the vitamin D and a fish oil. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that they can find through you, through the practice, using right. Fullscript. Right. It's a great resource. Right. So you don't have to be a patient. If you contact us and ask for the link to, to log, a matter of fact, it's posted on my social media, my blog, you can actually go right to the Fullscript website and uh, claim that you're, um, you know, uh, been referred to by me and you automatically get a 10% discount yeah, it's great. and you can go in and order your stuff right off and they'll drop ship it and they have a ton of stuff on there oh, great yeah. 
all good. It's fun just to browse to around. Browse around. <laughs> yeah, I've discovered a few things. I, I didn't know this, but uh, recently I discovered they carry a bovine sourced thyroid. So you know how armor is yes. from the pig and you need yes. a prescription for it? Well, they actually have one that's imported from New Zealand cows, you know, specially raised, no antibiotics, yeah. no growth hormone. And it's the thyroid gland from the, from the cow, not the pig. Yeah. And it's available on there without, without a, prescription. a prescription. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, maybe I need to try that one. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm experimenting. I'm beta testing it on my wife. She, okay. she, we just got a bottle of it for her. Great. To try, well, so we'll see. The two of us, we can, we can, beta, <laughs> we can beta test it together. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on? No, I think we um, we did um, talk about health reforming healthcare is a big one. Uh, we talked about Lyme disease. We talked about the COVID pandemic, and I'll just make another plug for the um, if you go to the FLCC website, you can look at their conferences. And the one is uh, mid October in Orlando, okay. and I think they're going to be opening it up to the general public in some form or the other. Yeah. But it's intended for doctors who want to learn more about how to best handle and manage sick people with. Um, long haulers and vaccine injury. Well, I hope that any physicians who are watching or listening today will take you up on that and, and become a part of the, that world. One of the things you mentioned in your presentation was the, the need to make communities of physicians right. and, and find your tribe. Right. And it's so important. Right. It's so important. There are little pockets out there. I, I had the pr privilege of being introduced to a group called Concerned Doctors out of Alabama. And they're 80 plus strong. And they had a they have a bi-monthly um, webinar, and I was invited by Dr. David to uh, to listen in, and I was so impressed about how organized they were. And I'm like, we need this in South Carolina, we need this in North Carolina, and I've uh, I'm kind of communicating with all these docs I know I've met actually over the last couple of years. I tend to be an introvert. I'm not a very public. I don't like politicking. So I usually keep to myself, but I can't anymore. So I've become a little bit of a social butterfly in the in the realm of healthcare, touching on all these different folks from different organizations. And we need to coalesce our efforts to be a strong fighting army to combat what mainstream medicine has actually ruined. And I'm very idealistic. I take my Hippocratic Oath very seriously. And I'm a very much a patient advocate and it just chaps me to see what's going on in healthcare. It just makes me so upset. So I'm now taking that role on, you know, my little microcosm. Hopefully I can convince others to do the same and we can change healthcare. Well, I hope that the next time you come on the show that there will be some additional awesome news to report on that direction and those efforts to gather people, to gather physicians and educate the public of what's available as right. well. Well, thank you for joining me today. Whitney, is always a pleasure. Thanks. Okay.